0: As always, our show is sponsored by Memoria Press. You can find our curriculum at memoriapress.com.
1: Welcome to Classical Etc., a show from Memoria Press that dives into the philosophy, culture, and heart of classical education. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon.
0: Welcome to another episode of Classical Etc. I'm seated with some of my friends, but I'm in an order that is startling to me. (laughs) So Martin is seated to my right when he's typically been to my far left, if you're just a listener and not a viewer. And now Paul is to the far left. And I feel like I'm going to get some sardonic gazes from Martin and not realize it because I'll be looking this direction. So I'm at a severe disadvantage.
1: I'm usually on the far right of any (laughs) group. Oh, my. (laughs) I think you just wanted the authoritative chair over there.
2: Oh, was that the authoritative (laughs) chair?
1: Uh, I moved the
0: chair. (laughs) <laughs> so no one wants to pick it why martin actually chose to sit there
2: oh i can tell you why he's his profile's better from the right
0: was it just a va- it's all about a vanity
2: it is totally about vanity next oh. time you see him he will have dyed all that gray out of his hair
3: <laughs> oh what do you mean all that gray <laughs> i i pride myself on the fact there's not all that much gray. <laughs> there's nothing wrong have with you having looked gray, in gray hair, a
2: mirror?
3: <sighs> No, I there's mean, if you're going to compare these nothing two, nothing
2: though, wrong with thank Heavens you, Tonya. Right here. Thank oh, you.
0: So let me ask you guys a question. What have you been reading recently? Oh, well, gosh. before I ask that question, I'm going to tell everyone that what we're going to talk about on this episode is the trivium. We're getting back to some of our fundamental issues at Memorial Press, and we're going to discuss
1: that in length. But before we get there, Paul, what have you been reading recently? I'm still getting through J. Crow again. J. Crow, And the more I get through it, the more I appreciate it again. Where, where are you in the novel? I am uh, right where Roy is destroying the farm, Athy's farm.
2: Is that difficult for you to read? It's,
1: it's very difficult for me to read, but it also makes me, it makes me evaluate now what I'm doing. Mm. Because, In a positive light. And, well, and, and making sure I don't fall into Roy's trap mm. because it's so easy to say, well, I'm going to hop on the tractor and go do this instead of. Yeah, I fleshed that out a little bit for those who haven't read
0: Jaber Crow. What's the point that Wendell Berry is making there well, using Roy?
1: Roy is Athy's son in law, and Athy has like 500 acres, but he only ever is farming 40 of them. And well, I think he's cropping 40 of them max. And then he has the rest of it's always in, under grass, as he called it. And he would run animals on it and he would cycle what 40 acres he was doing. And his son in law comes in and just wants to. He wants to crop it all, mm. um, and wants to go into debt buying machinery in order to be able to crop it all. And, then, and he, but he has to crop it all in order to pay for the machinery. And basically, of he being, sells out. He sells out instead of being content with the lifestyle that his father-in-law had lived. He wanted the the newest and greatest, and to do more, and um, and so progress that's not really progress which
3: is a metaphor for our whole agricultural economy right now
1: and i think a lot more than just agriculture Mm -hmm. right i mean progress 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 and the bottom line and not and not thinking about what what are we leaving behind to get that progress isn't that the same
3: problem with education i think
0: so Mm -hmm. the hard-hitting questions tony what have you been reading recently
2: I'm reading or I just finished a book by Anne Cleves that I could that I got in um England that we can't get in America right now. So I was very proud of it and I started it when I was in London. I got it at this great bookstore called Waterstones that's like seven floors of amazing. And um I'm reading um another <laughs> I just got a new book of short stories by Wendell Berry Mm -hmm. that I didn't not even know was coming out, but it came in the mail. And so um, I started reading that and I feel like I should be reading. Oh, I'm reading a lot of Tracy Lee Simmons essays.
0: Can you say uh, what you think of late Wendell?
2: Late Wendell. Well, the funny thing is I'm just, I've just read the first story and it's, you know, Typical yeah. Wendell, very good, lots of wisdom. But um, the funny thing is in the jacket, he makes the comment that um, it's taken him his entire life to learn how to write like an old man. And I <laughs> thought that was funny because he is an old man.
3: Uh, he, I think he's always, always written <laughs> like an old man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, if since uh, there's been so much, uh, window, I, I, I think I mentioned this uh, the last show. Uh, I'm reading the need to be whole, mm-hmm. and I'm partway into that. And that's that's excellent. Um, but I also just started um, the second book in the Civilization series by Will and Ariel Durant. It's one of the great mm-hmm. comprehensive histories that have ever been done, um, written by somebody who knows how to write and knows how to tell a story because history is a story. And I just, I'm just amazed once again at, at how good history is, if it's, if it's in the hands of a good storyteller.
2: Did they do Caesar and Christ?
3: Yeah. Caesar and Christ. The uh, the first one is um, the Orient or the Oriental culture, I think. So I read that one uh, several years ago. And then I started looking around because I really, I wanted to keep up on my history, but I kind of, kind of wanted to start at the beginning and, there's a bunch of things out there. So and I at first I thought, well, I'll read Winston Churchill's The History of the English Speaking People. Hmm. No, actually, um, Gibbon's The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire would come before that. And then Well, actually, Will and Ariel Durant starts at, really at the very beginning. I'll just do that one first, and then I'll read Gibbon, and then maybe Macaulay and uh and uh and Churchill's mm-hmm. uh histories. Um Churchill, interestingly enough, I, I I was reading something about him the other day. And it made an observation that I had never thought about, and it's so true. Churchill was primarily not a politician. Hmm. Churchill was a writer. That's how he made his money. That's, That's how, how he, he kept money. himself. That's he. And we don't. We think of him as a politician sure. who also writes. It's actually the reverse.
2: Hmm. Right. Hmm. That's interesting. That's how he. But he would get just really in dire straits, and so he'd run off and write fifteen hundred pages. But yeah. his history of the English-speaking people isn't that huge. Yeah. I think it's huge. It's, like, well, it's well it's the Durant big, series is,
3: is three times that size.
0: Wow.
2: But you're just reading one of them. Yeah, right now. Yeah.
0: Well, I'm impressed by you, Martin. You guys will all be happy to hear that I am reading a new book during my feeding Jack time. My son Jack uh-huh. is five months old, and so I feed him every morning. It takes like 30 minutes because he always putzes around with the bottle. And during that time, I read a book on my Kindle. And so I just picked out The Beautiful and the Damned by F. Scott Fitzgerald.
2: Okay. Um, that's so funny because Ian and I were just talking. He's rereading the Great Gatsby. And oh. I said, you know, I've read it three times. I don't like it. I've never liked it. I know we're going to get hate mail over that. <laughs> um, I just, but I've tried. I've really tried. And Ian said, well, maybe you need to try something else by mm-hmm. instead of keep, you know, I keep trying the same book over and over because his prose is beautiful.
0: Mm-hmm. I find it very funny. I, I really like This Side of Paradise gatsby didn't leave much of an impression on okay
2: i'm gonna try something else just in all fairness to fitzgerald yeah
0: but so far so good i've enjoyed it and i find him just the way he describes things is very you know under under low-key it's underplayed um underwhelming um in a understated is the correct word
3: i i have a every time i hear his name now i'm I'm, i don't think of gatsby or any of his (laughs) any of his books i think of um uh, a Movable Feast by Hemingway where mm. Hemingway's talking about taking care of Fitzgerald who was a hypochondriac. I really want to read it, that. I haven't is, read that. You know, that. it is uh, of of all Hemingway's books and I I do like Hemingway. I mean, I I, I think there's there's a, a a sense of nihilism in his writing in a way, Definitely. but he, he somehow supersedes that and I think the most enjoyable, immediately enjoyable book I read of his is a movable feast because it's it's a chatty tell all book about, uh, hanging out with writers in Paris in early, early early 20th century. Yeah. You know?
2: Yeah. It sounds good.
0: The topic of today's discussion is the trivium. So the liberal arts are made up of seven arts. Three of them. We call the trivium four of them. We call the quadrivium, the trivium and the quadrivium together make up the seven liberal arts.
2: Do you want me to write, to name those for you, Martin?
3: I'm just, I'm just doodling. I'm not writing anything in form. Martin's not paying I attention to the conversation. I mean, I'm, He's I'm just, just doodling. I've I've heard all this stuff before. Paul.
0: <laughs> tell us what the trivium are. What are those three arts?
1: grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And what are grammar, <laughs> logic, and rhetoric? We're really making your life difficult today, aren't we? Um, grammar is the art of communicating concepts
2: with words.
1: With words, Look, that's the, what you my wrote for me. Yeah, you wrote Look at it that
2: for me. Paul made me a chart because I didn't understand. Excuse
3: me, that chart is not Paul's.
2: Oh,
1: <laughs> that chart is mine. I, I had to explain. And he's it. doodling <laughs> on my chart. <laughs> Paul um, made hold me on, a tra- hold on, hold on. But if you notice, there's this little line here that yes. shows grammar, grammar, logic, and rhetoric all were communicating, communicating with, with words. words right. But grammar by itself is the art of communicating a concept. And then logic would be the art of, of arranging those concepts into an argument for deductive reasoning and, lo- and rhetoric would be the art of taking those arguments and putting them in a persuasive form. Martin, what's the significance of the trivium among the liberal arts? I
0: think people talk about the trivium more often. Given Paul's definitions, why are we talking about the trivium? Why is that concept important for us?
3: Well, uh, I don't know that you know, trivium means the three ways. I don't think there's any necessary necessary secret in the number uh, three. There, it's just it is there. There are there are seven intellectual skills, and four of them are quantitative, mathematical. Those are quadrivium we haven't talked about it yet. Um, but the first three, the quadrivium, are just the three linguistic thinking skills. Uh, I've always said. That, you know, Erin's talking about thinking skills all the time. And classical education is the only system of education that has a thinking skills program. It's called the liberal arts. That's what these are. There's only two kinds of thinking skills either quantitative, which is the quadrivium, or qualitative uh, linguistic, which are the trivium. And, uh, and so I think they're, they are, it's just a division of the three kinds of language skills.
0: Tony, you expressed to us before we sat down that you came to the conversation of the liberal arts and the trivium like most people do. You thought of the liberal arts as something like the humanities or a liberal arts college.
2: I did. I went to a liberal arts college and I studied humanities and I thought it was the same thing.
0: So what helps you clear up that,
2: well, that distinction? Well, um I don't know. How many years ago did we do this? Using this chart that he made me years ago that I've kept (laughs) that really helped. I mean, literally, Paul and I sat in a room two times, I think. I had two classes in this, and I made notes, and he made notes, and it cleared me up. So I hope. Let's see, Mark. Let's see, Paul. So he said that literature, history, and philosophy are humanities.
1: That is typically what okay. is referred to as a humanities. But
2: all of these seven, trivium and quadrivium, are liberal arts.
1: That's correct.
2: And my other confusion was that science, I think of science as chemistry and biology, but that science was typically, back in medieval days, any organized body of knowledge.
0: Mm-hmm. So, Paul, where do you think that this idea of using the humanities to describe these, what we probably would call sciences now, literature, history, Where did that come from and how did we start associating humanities with liberal arts, which in the past were more specifically skills that people acquired?
1: Yes. Paul, why am I confused? (laughs) That's a great question, Shane. Why is tiny confused? It requires a long answer. (laughs) (laughs) I I think you can't acquire a skill in a vacuum. So I think the traditional way of mastering the arts of language was by studying literature and history and philosophy and using language in ways that would help the student acquire the skills of grammar, logic, and rhetoric, and so they were always learned together, which is why general culture started seeing them as one and the same, and then and then sort of the the focus on acquiring the arts, the skills, they just kind of faded. Until all we were left with, well, we just studied literature because we studied literature, right?
2: And I think my first confusion came in an article that Martin wrote, where he was referring to science.
0: Was this before you edited it, or after afterwards?
2: <laughs> no, it was as in during the editing process, and he kept referring to science as a liberal art, and I was like, "You're crazy! Science is not a liberal art." And then he finally realized that that I was really talking about humanities, not liberal arts, that my definition of humanities, I was limiting liberal arts to being literature, history, and philosophy.
3: And that's that's the way it's popular, popularly used. I mean, there's there's been a whole slate of books that have come out in the last 10 years on the liberal arts, and it almost always refers to the humanities. Um, I think the reason – I, I, think, I think the way in which the uh, sciences of the humanities, literature and history and philosophy, I think the, the reason those got identified with liberal arts is because we used to call them a liberal education. Mm. Now, if you say a liberal education, then you're including – it's just the, the education of a, of a free person. So you're and all included the liberal all, arts which and included, the sciences, yeah, which include the arts and the sciences, and so yeah, that's what you see on the side of college walls, you know, the arts, uh, the 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 department of arts and sciences, or whatever, right. and not not just the liberal arts too, but also the fine arts, right, right. right. But the liberal, but and it just, I think, just got a little confused and. and well, I was started. really
2: confused about what you were doing with natural science.
3: Yeah, because well, natural science is a science. I, I don't think I ever talked talked about that as an art, uh, but no, but but. but, but no. But I think what ha- we use the word science now. We've collapsed it down into just the natural sciences, and, uh, which used to be natural philosophy, actually. Uh, you, scientists, scientists were not called scientists until about the late 19th century. Uh, Charles Darwin considered himself a naturalist, a natural mm-hmm. philosopher. Uh, so, so I think we just need to be – just for clarification purposes, the arts are uh, abilities – Capacities, uh, intellectual capacities, and that's what the the liberal arts are—the trivium and the quadrivium. Uh, the sciences are just organized uh, bodies of knowledge, which include the humanities, which in which are then there's three of them. There, there, there is literature. There's history, and there's philosophy. Those are the main main ones. Now.
1: But, but those would, are the three moral.
3: Those are the three sciences. moral sciences, and then you have the three natural sciences: physical, earth sciences, and life sciences.
2: You're reading. You're reading off of Paul's chart.
3: This, this, is, like, this is my chart. chart.
0: This is like <laughs> when I was a server at a fancy restaurant, and someone would ask me the ingredients of a particular item, and I would look at their menu, discreetly <laughs> and read those ingredients. They still them. do this. Uh, I, yeah. I, I think
1: we probably need to. Um, acquire a copy of this by from whoever made it yes and then put it in that I'll so show you notes my for laptop people. <laughs> okay
2: <laughs> i really thought paul made this for me
1: <laughs> i'm not i i honestly don't recall where this came from however I, I will take martin's word for it i i do think that we need to clarify that art's I mean I made the comment before that you you can't study a, an art or a capacity in a vacuum with you need some content that you're going to play with but there is actually some content embedded in that art mm-hmm. right so you know grammar is is while it is the art of communicating a the concept there there is a body of knowledge of rules of how this works it's, right? in other words it's taught as a subject Yes. Yes. I mean, it's really, it's taught as a body of knowledge and Mm -hmm. and through that body of knowledge, you will acquire that skill. But then once you have that sort of body of knowledge, you have to practice that in other domains. And that's where the sciences come in. Mm -hmm. Paul, do you make that
0: clarification to distinguish the way that we're using the trivium and describing it as grammar, logic, and rhetoric versus someone who would see it as a purely developmental paradigm for how children learn over time?
1: No, I was really trying to clarify something I said before, but that is a very good point yes that um what we're what we're trying to i think clarify here is the liberal arts from a uh medieval and renaissance point of view not sort of the 20th century point of view the way the way the trivium was was Dorothy Sayers used it analogously, right? I mean, we would say that she she know she knew what the trivium was, from the medieval point of view, but in her Lost Tools of Learning, she um, she used it as an analogy for developmental stages, and so that it, that's a helpful paradigm. But what we're I think you're talking about is the the, the medieval tradition,
2: and I think that that when we you and i talked and this has been i don't know how many years ago we were at popular level weren't we
1: yeah i think so
2: um but something that something else that helped me was was when you talked about you know the things that we do in those younger years like scripture memory and the grammar rules and the poetry that we memorize and all that body of knowledge that we are Basically, giving students, which would be an imitation, which is the first step, and which started immediately with learning to read, using language. And so I mean, we say that the grammar stage is certain certain ages, but I remember Cheryl always saying, "You know, when you started Latin, you need to start, even if you're older, when you start. And maybe in high school, you still have to start in the grammar stage.
3: Well, and she would she famously said uh, that grammar is not a grammar level subject because it in, <laughs> analytical because grammar, it's that's analytical right. and, <clears throat> and in Dorothy Sayers' taxonomy, which I have no problem with, as as long as you don't mistake it for this, um, it's um, it's it's really a uh, it's really a logic level or uh, dialectic. The dialectical level subject grammar uh, subject grammar is grammar,
1: really yeah, right. yeah. logic
2: level subject. I yeah, find this all very confusing. Still,
0: which is good news for most people, probably find it confusing as well. But that doesn't mean that it's not helpful for our students to be exposed to it, even though these are confusing and difficult topics. Now, with the trivium, particularly, you just pointed this out, Martin. It's not necessarily harmful to use That's,
1: the Paul. Um,
0: no, Martin sits there. I know. I know for sure. <laughs> Sorry, Paul, Paul just mentioned that it's not necessarily harmful to talk about these as uh, developmental stages. I think sometimes you also hear people saying that, you know, each subject has its grammar, logic, rhetoric, not a harmful way to look at it, as Tanya was saying. Right. But what they are themselves are skills that perfect the human Yeah, well, because
3: I, I, I think the problem has been that Dorothy Sayers is a post-psychological post-psycho- thinker. Uh, in in the late 19th century with the rise of psychology we all got very concerned about how people thought and how they learned and so this became a big thing in education and so we had to to we everything got refocused from content to uh to skills and ability on the part of the student and we became concerned with child development this was dewey's great revolution and so uh before that nobody would have thought of stages of learning they just they didn't talk about those things. You go back and you read Quintilian, who was the great pedagogue of, of ancient times. He's not talking too much about how kids learn, other than if he's talking about the right way to teach phonics or something, which he does in his Institutes of Oratory. But um, but so this this focus becomes very child developmental and very psychological. Um, and so we start coming up with taxonomies of learning. And Dorothy Sayers was one of the first, actually. It came out about seven years before Benjamin Bloom came up with what we now know as Bloom's Taxonomy of Learning, which every education student learns in 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 uh, ed school. Um, so she's – you can, you can come at it from a developmental standpoint, from a psychological standpoint. But that's very different from coming at it from a more ontological or philosophical Uh, perspective and and you just need to be careful not to confuse the two. Mm. And what has happened is people have confused those two perspectives and they think they're one and the same and they're not. So
0: uh, Paul, how do the, how does the trivium manifest itself in our classical schools or how should it, how does it in the online Academy, where can the the liberal arts specifically the trivium be found?
1: Well, (sighs) everywhere. Thank you, Tanya. Thank you it's really it it is it is hard to pinpoint it because you know you for example take logic right so we're trying to teach them the the art of rational thought right um being able to, to deduce things induce things um but we we have to start that in in we have to start getting students thinking in those patterns fourth grade fifth grade sixth grade right but we're preparing them for that sort of rational step-by-step thought through their study of latin right which is a very very systematic way of looking at language right which and when they hit when they study logic as logic right where they they study the syllogism and the kinds of statements that's they're going to have that same kind of process of thought but we wouldn't call it we're not studying logic as logic in fourth or fifth grade, but we're doing things to prepare them for it. Right. Um, you know, same thing with grammar, right? We're studying grammar in Latin. We have, uh, we have an English grammar restation program where we're making that explicit in English when we're doing literature studies and we're asking the students to, to respond and complete sentences. We're doing grammar studies there. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's pervasive in everything we do in, in classical studies you know, even in, in, in the way they respond to a science question in our nature studies, right? And so while we will have a grammar class and we will have a logic class eventually, and we will have a rhetoric class, all we're, we're practicing these arts really in, in, in every subject. Uh, and the one thing I'll say about rhetoric is really our composition program, the the classical composition, the pro pro-gymnosmata, really, those are rhetorical exercises um, and so we're really preparing the student to have those persuasive skills, whether they're doing that just in a, in a standalone essay or whether they're doing that, um, you know, in, in, in some sort of speech or a paper in history or, or just, you know, talking with their peers.
3: And that's this, and this goes back to what I was talking about in terms of the liberal arts being a thinking skills program and the only thinking skills program worthy of the name is because starting even with Latin, what you're teaching kids to do is is to do the two basic thinking skills, which are analysis, which is making distinctions, seeing the differences and things, and a synth and in synthesis, which is seeing the similarities and things and putting things together, and you do that all over a systematic grammar like Latin. You have to match things. You have to tell the difference in you know person and number in verbs, um, uh, tense, voice, and in in mood in 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 verbs. Um, and nouns have their own you know case, gender, number. You're having to make distinctions, and then you're having to match things. You know you got to have. When you, when you have an adjective that modifies a noun, they got to be the same in, in case, gender, and number. And there's five cases uh, and, and three genders and two numbers, singular and plural. That's a very sophisticated exercise. Uh, and it's an analytical, synthetical exercise. And so doing that starts to train your brain in a, in, to, to, to be organized about things so that then you get the logic. And you're using those same skills, but in a slightly different way in terms of, um, in terms of, of reasoning, and then in rhetoric in terms of persuasion. So, it's it's uh, it's it's thinking skills. And
2: and I do think they get they get um, they kind of meld together. I don't think you. I think we have a tendency to think, okay, we're in the grammar stage now, so we're just going to focus on memory, and um, like in literature, our grammar. Our literature for the younger grammar years, the questions are very easy to find in the book because we're teaching that particular skill is how do you find an answer to a question? But they very quickly, and we always have discussion questions that are more elevated and that would be more logic stage questions on their grade level. So I think we you know f- that we try to cubbyhole these grammar logic rhetoric. And I do think that's part of that Dorothy Sayers, this is our stage, this is what we're doing. And it doesn't go beyond that, but it does. And and the Latin, like you say, parsing a sentence is, you know, we can do that in grammar school, but that's a pretty high level skill.
1: Well, and I think if we go back to the definitions of what the liberal art of grammar, logic, rhetoric are, right? If grammar is the art of communicating a concept in words, Right, uh, then the the act of that sort of basic comprehension question, right, uh, is is a very is very much practicing the liberal mm-hmm. art of grammar. Not not a not I'm not saying a grammar stage skill. It's practicing the liberal art of grammar because we're trying to say what in this text is communicating this concept, right? And then those discussion questions Tanya mentioned. That's very much practicing the art of logic saying okay we have these basic concepts but from that what can we then know and what what then can we find out about these characters because of that and so um you know what we're
2: not doing a lot of is the persuasive um
1: not early on
2: right in the younger years but i do think these are um they're Um, I can't think of the word. Mutually informing? Yes, and I think it's just a little gray. Mm -hmm. You know, it gets a little gray based on what the students are able to do. You told me that logic is the art of forming arguments out of communicable concepts and rhetoric art of forming arguments into persuasive forms. So I I guess we're not really doing persuasive forms in grammar school, rarely. Well, we
1: do it in the progenm. In classical, classical comp, that that would probably be the one place Mm -hmm. that I would really say we do that. Mm -hmm. So let me put on my um,
0: devil's advocate hat and ask you this question: If the liberal arts are pervasive in our curriculum, they're not necessarily just a stage, grammar, logic, rhetoric, and they are the process, as Martin said, of synthesizing and um, and analyzing, making distinctions. Then what makes our education in the liberal arts, distinctly classical versus any other educational curriculum that forces students to analyze and synthesize and communicate things, uh, put ideas together, rationalize them and persuade people.
2: I think because of our Latin, because of Latin in a classical education that we are giving our students the exercise that they need in order to be able to do these things well.
3: Yeah, I, and I think that uh, a lot of programs do bits and pieces of all this, but they they don't really understand, they don't, don't talk about or understand the distinction between quantitative and qualitative skills that you're seeing in the trivium and the quadrivium, respectively. And, you know, they they haven't gone back to the old curriculum, which we have, which does involve uh, the Latin, the 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 learning of of another uh, gramma- very grammatical language, uh, and you know we're we're not we're not always trying to innovate. We're not always trying to do the newest thing. We're we're just going back to these basic concepts that the older thinkers and the older educators understood and what they used to put together this curriculum. We don't have to redo a bunch of things. All we've got to do is go back and did what was generally done in good schools until the end of the nineteenth century. and uh, and so we've gone back and you know take a look at why why they did it and what what the superstructure behind it is. but you could you could you could get away with just doing what they did. Just it was. The old it was a enterprise.
2: lot of research on the part of um, Sherilyn Martin, you know, to figure out what they did so well back then and to figure out how we can do it now in a modern setting. And I I think the other big thing is because we have a school, we have an entire curriculum. And so it's very cohesive. In fact, I think you have 18 reasons why a (laughs) curriculum should be
0: cohesive. I do have 18 (laughs) reasons why you should have a cohesive curriculum.
2: But we probably don't have time for those. I'll spare you.
1: I would like to directly answer the last question you, you asked Shane is by saying that what makes us different is I think the fact that we've intentionally embedded these things. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, my alma mater uh, where also Tanya's son graduated from, they were a liberal arts college but after a while, found out that their graduates could not communicate well, which seems to be the sort of the basic impulse behind the Trivium. And so what they did, instead of saying, every teacher, you need to require students to be communicating, to be practicing these skills, they tacked on an additional required course once a year. And in that course, you're going to be required to do that, right? So basically, there's, they were saying, you need this skill, but we're, we're only going to do it over here. And the fact that it's embedded throughout intentionally means that the students are going to really fully master it in, in a variety of circumstances. So they've got that skill and they can use it anywhere. Well, a large part
3: of the problem with programs like you're talking about is that you have a, have a bunch of people who cannot communicate very well, trying to teach children to <laughs> okay. communicate well. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, you have to know it yourself in order to teach it. Um, so, so I I think that, that you know this this is why we're in the boat we're in right now is because in, in the first part of the 20th century, classical education started to get questioned um, by the people who were uh, more focused on the psychology and and uh, and and on vocational education and the. Ed, classical educators of that time had a hard time defending themselves because they had just presumed this all along for centuries, and all of a sudden they're being asked, "Why do you do it this way?" And they didn't have a good answer. And so, in the 1920s, everything—the wheels just fall off of of the, the old education system, and uh, the, it it just it just sort of falls into pieces. And people have have been running around with different pieces of it for years, and we're just trying to put the pieces back together. If anyone's
0: interested in Understanding more about the trivium, the liberal arts, how to precisely define it. Any recommended resource for that person?
2: Oh, you've written several articles on this, which confused me, but maybe they won't confuse the general public.
0: <laughs> so, on Memorial Press's <laughs> website, if you just type in "liberal arts," you, a couple of articles by Martin come up. They're pretty helpful. Yeah,
3: yeah, I just, just, uh, just. I've got several uh, articles on, generally speaking, on classical education and on the liberal arts. There was a, one of the articles I did has this has chart, chart that has been being attributed to Paul this whole time. <laughs> uh, and, and that's in there. Uh, so I, I think, quite frankly, the best resources you're going to get are probably on our website.
0: Sure. Well, on that note, I think, Martin, we've set everyone straight.
3: I think we have. Even Tanya,
0: in terms I'm, of where I'm getting chart came there
2: upon. I'm getting yep. there.
0: All right. Well, thank you guys for the conversation. I've enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like this episode, consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always, I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.
1: You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit us at memoriapress.com. To connect with us, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you so much for listening,
3: and we'll see you next time.